Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 31st edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarn, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that the going and coming rule has a more restrictive application in tort cases than it does in workers' compensation claims. Here's what happened in the public case of Pearson v. Helmerich and Payne International Drilling. Helmerich and Payne International Drilling operates oil drilling rigs located in South Kern County on an Occidental Petroleum leasehold. The night shift crew for one of these oil rigs included defendant Louis Mooney, who was a floor hand, and Mark Stewart, who was a motorman. Ruben Abara was the crew's driller and the supervisor of Mooney, Stewart, and other members of the crew. Ibarra and Stewart did not live in the area and stayed at the Best Western Hotel. Mooney lived in Bakersfield and provided Ibarra and Stewart with rides to and from the drill site in his personal vehicle, a Ford 250 pickup. Mooney testified that he had given Ibarra a ride at least 50 times, and the route from his home to the job site took him by the hotel anyway. In 2011, after the end of their shift, Mooney was returning home and giving Ibarra and Stewart a ride to the hotel as usual when Mooney's pickup collided with another vehicle driven by plaintiff Brent Pearson. Mooney crossed the double yellow line and into the lane of oncoming traffic. Pearson and his wife filed a personal injury action against Mooney and later added H&P as a defendant claiming that Mooney was in the course and scope of his employment because he was taking co-workers to the hotel. The employer filed a motion for summary judgment claiming that the incident occurred when Mooney was driving home from work and did not occur while he was in the course and scope of his employment. Pearson opposed this motion and filed his own motion for a summary adjudication on the issue of employment. The trial court granted summary judgment for the employer, concluding as a matter of law that the going and coming rule applied and, therefore, Mooney's operation of his vehicle at the time of the accident was not within the scope of his employment. And the Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal of the employer in the published case. The doctrine of respondeat superior holds that an employer is liable for torts of its employees committed within the scope of their employment. Thus, a plaintiff suing an employer under the doctrine must prove that the tort was committed within the scope of employment. A corollary of this doctrine of respondeat superior is the going and coming rule, which states that employees do not act within the scope of employment while going to or coming from the workplace. The rationale for this rule is that the employment relationship is suspended from the time the employee leaves work until he or she returns because an employee ordinarily renders no service to the employer while traveling. The going and coming rule is used in tort law to determine the scope of employment for purposes of respondeat superior liability. And also it is used in workers' compensation law to determine whether an employee injured himself while traveling to or from work sustained an injury arising out of and in the course of employment. 
However, the Court of Appeal noted that the going and coming rule applied in tort law is not identical to the rule applied in workers' compensation law. The differences exist because the policy considerations underlying each field of law are different. This view of the going and coming rule is nothing new and has been confirmed by most recent published decisions addressing the going and coming rule. Workers' compensation cases awarding coverage do not necessarily provide a reliable precedent for tort cases because the version of the rule applied in tort cases is more restrictive. Berkshire Hathaway has been under scrutiny by the California Insurance Commissioner for selling workers' compensation insurance policies that have not been administratively approved for sale in California. Now another major national carrier has resolved a claim filed by three Southern California district attorneys also for violating California law while selling insurance policies for nearly $1 million. Los Angeles County District Attorney Jackie Lacey announced a $925,000 settlement with Liberty Mutual for advertising an accident forgiveness program that was not available in California. The civil complaint was jointly filed in Riverside County Superior Court by district attorneys in Los Angeles, Riverside, and San Diego counties and alleges unfair competition by Liberty Mutual. Back in 2014, Liberty Mutual launched a nationwide television campaign touting its accident forgiveness program that protects drivers from having their insurance rates increase if they are responsible for an accident. However, California consumer protection laws prohibit accident forgiveness programs from being offered in California. Liberty Mutual estimates the ad campaign reached 70 to 80 percent of the households in California. Prosecutors said the ads had a disclaimer that was obscured, used small type, and was on the screen for no more than three or four seconds. California law requires all advertising to clearly disclose these issues. Under the terms of the judgment, Liberty Mutual will be subject to an injunction requiring full compliance with state law with its accident forgiveness advertising, including the disclosure of the fact that such programs are not available in California. The $925,000 settlement will be split among the three counties. The Department of Industrial Relations Division of Labor Standards Enforcement imposed nearly a $179,000 penalty against Aaron's Automotive for failure to maintain workers' compensation insurance. The employer unsuccessfully pursued an administrative appeal and court of appeals to his penalty. This company has been in operation since 2007. In early 2015, the Department of Labor Standards Enforcement discovered the business had employees but had never acquired workers' compensation insurance coverage. On February 9, 2015, Aaron Taylor obtained coverage through the State Compensation Insurance Fund effective at the end of January. The penalty be imposed is based upon the number of days in the prior calendar year that the employer was not insured. At the administrative hearing, Taylor argued that the term calendar year, as used in the Labor Code Section 3722B, means 
January 1 to December 31, and that the section violates various constitutional requirements. The hearing officer issued written findings and affirmed the penalty assessment, and Taylor filed a petition for writ of administrative mandamus. A demur to the petition was granted without leave to amend, and the Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in the partially published case of Aaron Taylor v. Department of Industrial Relations. The case was primarily a dispute regarding the meaning of calendar year in Labor Code Section 3722B. Taylor said the term calendar year necessarily means January 1, 2014 through December 31, 2014, and that he only owes a penalty for January 1, 2015 to February 27th. But the Department of Labor Standards Enforcement, on the other hand, insists calendar year means the one-year period immediately before the date that the director determines that an employer is uninsured, or, in this case, February 27, 2014 to February 27, 2015, an entire year of penalties. The interpretation of Labor Code Section 3722B was a question of first impression for the court and the Court of Appeal concluded that the term calendar year means the 12-month period immediately preceding the determination of no insurance. Therefore, this construction of the statute does not in any way invalidate the penalty imposed. And now our crime report. Former California State Senator Ronald S. Calderon was sentenced to three and a half years in federal prison after pleading guilty to a federal corruption charge and admitting that he accepted tens of thousands of dollars in bribes in exchange for performing official acts as a legislator. In a plea agreement filed in this case, Calderon admitted accepting bribe payments from the owner of the Pacific Hospital of Long Beach, who wanted a law to remain in effect so he could continue to reap tens of millions of dollars in illicit profits from the California workers' compensation system. Ron Calderon also admitted taking bribes from undercover FBI agents who were posing as independent filmmakers who wanted changes to California's film tax credit program. Ron Calderon's brother, 62-year-old Thomas M. Calderon, also of Montebello, a former member of the California State Assembly, was sentenced last month to 10 months in custody for his conviction on a money laundering charge for allowing bribe money earmarked for his brother to be funneled through his company. For decades, the Calderon family was a political dynasty in California. In the first part of the bribery scheme, Ron Calderon took bribes from Michael Drabat, the former owner of Pacific Hospital of Long Beach. This hospital was a major provider of spinal surgeries that were often paid by workers' compensation programs. The spinal surgeries are at the center of a massive health care fraud scheme that Drabat orchestrated and to which he previously pleaded guilty. California law, known as the Spinal Pass-Through Legislation, allowed a hospital to pass on to insurance companies the full cost it had paid for medical hardware it used during spinal surgeries. Drabat Hospital exploited this law, typically by using hardware that it had been purchased at highly inflated prices from companies that Drabat controlled and passing this cost along to insurance providers. 
Drabat bribed Ron Calderon so that he would use his public office to preserve this law that helped Drabat maintain a long-running and lucrative health care fraud scheme. Ron Calderon asked a fellow senator to introduce legislation favorable to Drabat and attempted to recruit other senators to support Drabat as well. Life Care Centers of America and its owner, Forrest L. Preston, have agreed to pay $145 million to resolve a lawsuit alleging that Life Care violated the False Claims Act by causing skilled nursing facilities to submit false claims to Medicare and TRICARE for rehabilitation therapy services that were not reasonable, necessary, or skilled. LifeCare owns and operates more than 220 skilled nursing facilities across the country, including 10 in the state of California. Prosecutors say this resolution is the largest settlement with a skilled nursing facility chain in the uh, Justice Department's civil division history. Medicare reimburses skilled nursing facilities at a daily rate that reflects the skilled therapy and nursing needs of their patients. The greater the skilled therapy and nursing needs of the patient, the higher level of Medicare reimbursement. The highest level of reimbursement is for ultra-high patients who require a minimum of 720 minutes of skilled therapy from two therapy disciplines, one of which has to be provided five days a week. Prosecutors allege LifeCare instituted corporate-wide policies designed to place as many beneficiaries in the ultra-high reimbursement level, irrespective of the clinical needs of the patients. LifeCare also sought to keep patients longer than was necessary in order to continue billing for rehabilitation therapy, even after the treating therapist felt that therapy should be discontinued. As part of this settlement, LifeCare has also entered into a five-year chain-wide corporate integrity agreement that requires an independent review organization to annually assess the medical necessity and appropriateness of therapy services. The settlement resolves allegations originally brought in lawsuits filed under the Key Tom or whistleblower provisions of the False Claims Act by former LifeCare employees. The whistleblower reward in this case will be $29 million. A licensed occupational therapist pleaded guilty in Los Angeles for his role in a $2.6 million Medicare fraud scheme that involved billing for occupational therapy services that were not provided. 38-year-old Keith Canlapin of West Covina pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud. Sentencing is scheduled for February 2017. As part of his guilty plea, Ken Lappin admitted that he was a licensed occupational therapist employed with J.H. Physical Therapy, an occupational therapy clinic located in Walnut, California. Ken Lappin further admitted he billed Medicare for occupational therapy services when no such services were provided. On dates that Ken Lappin purportedly provided occupational services at JH Physical Therapy, Ken Lappin was admittedly not present and instead was either out of the country or at his other places of employment on some of those dates. Ken Lappin was charged along with co-defendant 50-year-old Simon Hong and 50-year-old Grace Hong, husband and wife, both of Brea, California. 
Simon Hong is the owner and Grace Hong is the co-operator of JH Physical Therapy, and they are charged with one count of conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud and three counts of healthcare fraud. Both are pending trial, which is scheduled in January. Another co-conspirator, Roderick Belmonte Conception, a licensed occupational therapist, was also previously indicted in a separate related case and pleaded guilty in April of 2016. His sentencing is scheduled for January 23, 2017. Freddie Pachon, a former vice president of risk management for select staffing, was sentenced to eight years and eight months in prison for embezzling more than $700,000 from the Santa Barbara-based temp agency. Pachon funneled money from reimbursement checks related to workers' compensation claims into a personal account he created under the fictitious business entity Select Consulting Services. He spent the stolen funds on lavish home and backyard renovations. At the time of his arrest, he was earning approximately $250,000 a year from Select Staffing, where he had been working since 2001. Pachan was sentenced to eight years and eight months in prison. An Orange County Sheriff's Department deputy was arrested on insurance fraud charges by failing to disclose his true physical abilities and activities to his health care providers and lying under oath. 36-year-old Nicholas Zappas, who lives in Laguna Niguel, is charged with 11 felony counts of insurance fraud and 7 felony counts of perjury under oath. If convicted, Zappas faces a maximum sentence of 16 years in state prison. Zappas has been employed as an Orange County Sheriff's Department deputy for about 14 years. In 2015, while working Harbor Patrol and engaged in a boat rescue, Zappas claimed he tripped over a fire hose falling on his back. He filed a workers' compensation claim for injuries to his left shoulder, left side of his back and neck, and his lower back. He was placed on work restrictions of no lifting, pushing, or pulling of greater than 10 pounds by a medical doctor due to his complaint of pain. The Sheriff's Department accommodated the work restrictions and Zappas was assigned to dispatch. However, between, uh, however, Zappas is accused of engaging in CrossFit training, which is a high-impact exercise with varied functional movements. He allegedly lifted substantial weights in excess of 200 pounds, doing box jumps, burpees, squats, and other activities that were contrary to the limitations imposed by the doctor. He is accused of failing to disclose that he was participating in CrossFit to his medical physicians. While under oath during his deposition, Zappas allegedly denied lifting anything over 20 pounds since the date of his injury and claimed that he could not lift anything heavy, could not do squats, and could not run. And in regulatory news, the WCIRB published its research on regional differences in California workers' compensation claim costs and frequency with the release of its second report. The study includes nine new maps illustrating regional differences. According to the study, the Los Angeles-Long Beach area continues to show higher indemnity claim frequencies than the rest of California 
while the Silicon Valley region continues to show lower indemnity claims frequencies. The Los Angeles-Long Beach area is the most litigious region in the state. Medical legal costs are over 2.8% of total incurred costs on indemnity claims compared with 2% statewide. And earlier this month, the Oregon Department of Consumer and Business Services announced the result of its biannual nationwide study of the costs of workers' compensation programs for 2016. According to that study, California once again is the worst state in the union in terms of costs. So to sum it up, California ranks as the most costly workers' compensation program in the nation and Los Angeles is the most costly region in the most costly state. The complete study and a mapping of nine-digit zip codes to the regions included in the study are available on the WCIRB website in the Research and Analysis section. And now our medical report. The FDA is seeking to improve hospital reporting of injuries and deaths associated with medical devices after inspections at 17 hospitals revealed widespread under-reporting of such events. And of course, an injury or death of an injured worker while being treated at such a hospital would be a compensable consequence additional injury. The FDA initiated the inspections following high-profile safety scandals involving power morcellators and contaminated duodenoscopes. Morcellators are used to remove uterine fibroids but can spread unsuspected cancerous tissue beyond the uterus. Duodenoscopes are treated are threaded through the mouth and throat to treat problems in the pancreas and bile ducts. Contaminated scopes can carry infections from one patient to another. The head of the agency's device division said many events uncovered at the 17 hospitals should have been reported and were not in violation of the agency's reporting requirements. The FDA believes such underreporting is a nationwide problem. In some states, hospital staff were neither aware of nor trained to comply with the agency's medical device reporting requirements. Now, the FDA wants to work with all hospitals to address these issues. On December 5, the FDA will hold a public workshop seeking input on improving hospital surveillance systems and how hospitals can better evaluate how well devices work in the clinical setting. Last year, the FDA sent warning letters to manufacturers of duodenoscopes saying they skirted a host of testing, manufacturing, and reporting requirements. The biggest makers of the products are Olympus Corporation, Pentax Medical, and Fujifilm Holdings Corporation. The FDA first warned of their potential for transmitting antibiotic-resistant germs in 2009. Since then, they have been implicated in superbug outbreaks at multiple U.S. hospitals. In 2014, the FDA warned that morcellators could inadvertently spread uterine cancer. It recommended that the use of these instruments be restricted and that the label includes a boxed warning, the most severe possible. Morcellators are used to slice fibroid and uterine tissue into small pieces inside the body, allowing it to be removed through a small opening. 
The FDA estimates that 1 in 350 women who have had fibroid surgery have an unsuspected uterine cancer. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates and past editions of our news and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.